Come thou font of every blessing, to my heart do sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Greetings, friends. My name is Margaret Ernst. And I started with singing today this first verse from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, partly to fulfill a promise to Reverend Anne to sing on my next podcast, and partly because this old hymn by Robert Robinson is on point for this week's lectionary text or rather, actually, the text from this past Sunday, May 26th. I messed up which text I was supposed to prepare for this week. I have some trouble reading the lectionary calendar sometimes, but I hope you still appreciate this commentary nonetheless. This is The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about surviving, resisting, and thriving in our current context of white supremacist violence, violence that has existed on American shores for centuries and which is finding new dangerous expressions today. The other music you'll hear throughout this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. And the group you hear singing it is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are so deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. I'm recording today, as you can probably hear, from a friend's backyard in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Cherokee land, where thousands of Cherokee were deported from in the mid-19th century during the Trail of Tears. My partner and I are here visiting for the weekend, and usually we live in Nashville, where I'm a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice Nashville, which is also on Cherokee land. This, is po- this podcast is a project of Surge Faith and of Surge Action. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everybody, but it's geared towards white people who are working to build our resistance muscles, or people working in white faith communities to boldly, strategically, and prophetically overturn white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. It's a super hot weekend, and so this afternoon we've been trying to cool off in any way we can. My friend's two-year-old is playing in a baby pool in the front yard filled with water from a hose. She eloquently described it as a toddler-sized pool full of dead leaves and mosquito larvae. And tomorrow we want to try to find some body of natural water to swim in, doing the thing that humans and all animals are inclined to do. Go towards water for refreshment, for renewal, for what our bodies need. If you haven't guessed, I'm going to talk about water in this episode. 
If you listened to our Easter episode a few weeks ago, you may have heard me tell a story about an action in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 when it started pouring rain when dozens of religious leaders were getting arrested outside the Ferguson police station calling for justice for Mike Brown. In that experience and in others, water has always been, for me, the metaphor for God's grace that works the best. When I think of God's grace, I imagine a fountain or a spring bursting through with refreshment and cleansing when and where you least expect it, providing a flow that is a source of life never-ending. Images of water as a sign of the divine are all over the Bible and hymns and liturgy. But what if water is not just a metaphor for God? What does water have to do with God in even more concrete ways? What does water have to do with fighting white supremacy and this historical moment we're in as a country and as a species? That's what I'm going to focus on today with the lectionary texts as our guide. the New Testament text is from Revelation chapters 21 and 22, and it's one of the visions that the author has of some incredible and dramatic imagery of a new recreated city of Jerusalem. An angel is the author's guide and reveals a heavenly city coming down from the sky, and there's no temple like there had been in the real Jerusalem for generations. The angel then shows the author to a river of the water of life flowing through the middle of the city street. That's right, instead of a temple, there's a river in the middle of the city flowing. And I'll pick up reading from here, Revelation chapter 22, verses one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see God's face and God's name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp of sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So hold that image of the river in the city flowing from the throne of God. And let's move now to the text from Acts 16 where we'll also find water. You see, Paul has a vision that inspires him and his crew to set sail to Macedonia, and they end up in the Roman colony of Philippi, a leading city in Macedonia. What follows is a scene in which they join a women's prayer meeting, and then they're offered hospitality by the women. Here now, Acts 16, verses 13 through 15. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, 
where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her husband were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she prevailed upon us. What do you notice about these two texts? One thing I first see is how the Roman Empire is the dramatic background in both, though it shows up really differently. In Revelation, this vision is otherworldly and surreal, much like the visions of the prophets like Ezekiel or Elijah or Enoch from the Jewish tradition that the author of Revelation would have been seeped in, or like the apocalyptic visions of the book of Daniel. The Revelation of John or the Apocalypse of John was written in a time of intense persecution of the movement that sprung out of Jesus of Nazareth's life and death and resurrection or followers of the way which some called themselves. It was written after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Rome after a Jewish uprising. And the context tells us that the vision of a new Jerusalem is a vision that has to do with rising out of trauma and of seeing former oppressors symbolized in beasts and dragons be vanquished. In the Acts text, the story is very realist, but the empire is very much still there. It's noted that Philippi is a major Roman colony, and in that context, that's where they find Lydia, a woman who is described as a god-worshipper or god-fearer. God-fearers were really interesting people in the Greco-Roman world. You see, as Jewish folks spread throughout different parts of the Roman Empire, people who were not born into Judaism were drawn to Jewish traditions, and they were called God-fearers. We know that there were a lot of women and freed slaves and craftspeople who were attracted to Judaism in this way for a variety of reasons. And so we don't know why Lydia was. But what is fascinating about that choice is that it entered folks into relationship with a god and a colonized people who were often positioned in an anti-imperialist stance towards Rome. God-fearers still retained their privileges as Roman citizens, but by not following the gods of the Roman pantheon, they positioned themselves in many ways as other and as marked as different within the empire. So in this story, Lydia, who is already embedded within Jewish tradition as a Gentile, she is baptized into the Jesus movement that Paul teaches her about. I have lots of questions about what that conversation was like. But whatever kinds of words they exchange and whatever her motivation for being baptized, Lydia also shows herself to be an incredibly hospitable person, offering a place to stay for several weeks for Paul and his team. In this story in Acts, the bank of a river is the site of Lydia's faith and of her devotion in her and in the other women's prayer life. It's also the location of her conversion to the Jesus movement, perhaps the renewal of her entrance into the depths of the anti-imperial tradition that she had joined as an outsider and as a Gentile. In Revelation, the river of life is at the center of the vision for a new world, a world that is in alignment with God. 
I can't help but notice the presence of water in both of these texts. Water showing up as a vision for life uninhabited by oppression in a new world. Water as a nurturer of subversive faith. Water as anti-imperial mediator. Reading this text from Revelation about the river of the water of life, I was brought back to a conference I attended in Minneapolis. It was several years ago, back in 2015, but what I listened to and experienced there really stuck with me. It was called Theology, Identity, and Place, hosted by the Church of All Nations in Minneapolis, and it was extremely powerful for a lot of reasons. We visited Bodote, the location of the Dakota creation story and also the detention of Dakota people during the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. There was a talk by water walkers, indigenous women who have walked the whole length of the Mississippi River as both protests and prayer to bring spiritual healing to the river and to draw attention to the environmental degradation experienced by the river because of big business and other human actions. The whole conference centered on the connection between water, place, colonization, and empire, everything that is present in these two texts as well. In fact, the biblical scholar Ched Myers gave a talk on exactly this same text from Revelation. He references the trip that we took to Bodote, the origin place of the Dakota people. And he talks about how in Revelation 22, now quoting, the river shines like crystal. It signals a dramatic restoration of life to the land and those dwelling on it, just as the Hebrew prophets had imagined. Those waters of life are not just springing up from the ground, they are proceeding from the throne of God. This notion of Yahweh as a cosmic spring echoes the psalmist, for with you is the fountain of life. And it is into this river of the water of life that we are invited by the Bodote and by the Baptist in order to bring our apprenticeship to the watershed and to take our stand somewhere against the catastrophe of empire." End quote. In the past few years, Ched and his wife Elaine and friends of theirs have stewarded a field called watershed discipleship which they define as faith that is shaped by recognizing that we live in a watershed moment of ecological crisis and of learning to be disciples in our watershed and developing awareness of the ways that our watersheds act as our teachers pointing us to God. You can read more about this way of thinking about Christian faith and the Bible in an anthology of essays called Watershed Discipleship. I'll link to that in other resources in the transcript. When I think about what water has to do with fighting white supremacy, I think of its role as a symbol of faith against empire, like Nicola's podcast on baptism, as a right for renouncing white supremacy in all powers and principalities. But even more so, waters themselves are the site of struggle, sites of both racism 
and resistance. At that same Church of All Nations conference in 2015, Jim Baird Jacobs, a Mohican activist and storyteller, talked about he, how he wept during a group singing of Wade in the Water that happened. He said he was weeping because in the midst of this joyous expression of freedom and of water as refuge, he was thinking acutely about waters that are in danger. He was thinking about the question, what about when there is no healing in the water? What about when the waters themselves are sick? His comment reminds me of the many water struggles indigenous communities are facing here on Turtle Island and also in Honduras and Guatemala, where present-day migrants are coming from. Migrants from Central America are being forced to face brutal, dehumanizing, and even fatal conditions in border detention centers as we speak. And in the places they come from, there are serious struggles over water, and there have been throughout centuries of colonization in Central America, with the face of empire changing over time. Today, that face is comprised of multinational corporations, many from the US and others from Europe and Asia, that invest in dam projects to harness the power of rivers as an energy source. And then they sell that energy far and away, far outside the local community. These hydroelectric projects, the profits of which go to the shareholders and CEOs of the multinational corporations that finance them, are praised as being more environmentally friendly than other kinds of energy. But they lead to water privatization in people's home communities, so they can't access the water under their feet or that's available from a natural spring that their family and ancestors have drawn on for centuries. The privatization of natural resources and the ways this strangles communities is one of the many issues related to both economy and society and politics and the environment that are pushing people to migrate to the US from Honduras and Guatemala. You may have heard of Berta Cárceres. Berta was a water protector in Honduras. She was a fierce community organizer and a part of the Lenca people. She successfully led campaigns in an extremely dangerous and hostile political climate to stop major dams in Honduras. And she died for it. Berta's story is just one of many around the world of extremely high stakes struggling over water for indigenous communities. Berta was killed by people who were hired by the dam company. Standing Rock, of course, has been one of the most high profile of these struggles where the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline on sacred Sioux land continues and where indigenous water protectors made the cry, water is life, go viral worldwide. In Canada, just 90 minutes from Toronto, the Six Nations Reserve struggles to access basic clean water while the company Nestle extracts precious water from the land for almost no cost. 
These phenomena are not new, and they're not unique to any part of the world. The exploitation of resources in the commons makes a connection between the water privatization in Central America and migration today, and the privatization of the commons that drove many people to migrate from Europe. Today, it is not just indigenous communities facing struggle over access to water. Many other communities of color and poor communities here in the States have had their water shut off or poisoned with lead in Flint, in New Jersey, in Chicago, and Detroit. That's why in addition to speaking the name of Berta Cáceres, it's important that we also speak the name of Charity Hicks, a black woman freedom fighter who struggled against the water shut offs in her community in Detroit, who tragically died in 2014. May they both rest in power. Many of us are beginning to look at maps projecting how high the waters will be in places that we live over the next 50 years. We're thinking about what our children and our children's children will need to reckon with, or where will be safer to move to. Earlier this spring in Nashville, there was tons of rain, and I remember being at a friend's farm south of the city one weekend when there were flash floods blocking the roads. I was safely indoors, but the water flooded tents and campsites of people who are living on the streets in Nashville, and some people lost everything that weekend. This is much of what we will see more and more of during the next century. In the past couple weeks, rivers have been surging in, mid in Midwestern states, bringing disaster with them. And so with this power and danger of water on our minds, I want to go back to that text from Revelation and to Jim Baer's question about water that heals. You see, communities that have survived natural disasters and human disasters related to water have a lot to teach us about resilience through these crises. In communities of color like Flint in Detroit or New Orleans or in Central America, what we might see as an apocalyptic future of water scarcity or destruction caused by water, that future, it's already here. My friend Sarah Green, a black queer UU minister originally from New Orleans, taught me a lot about how to respond to crises related to water by sharing a ritual that she wrote about the hurricane. Sarah gently poured essential oils into a bowl full of water and read this. I learned to interact with the water like he interacted with God, asking questions of it, praising it, arguing with it, learning from it and about it. Resistance looks like knowing where to place one's anger, and where the anger does not belong is in the water. Resistance looks like acknowledging all of the human failures that went into what happened on August 29, 2005. The effects of Hurricane Katrina was not the water's fault. The death of thousands in my community was not the fault of the water. I learned not to be angry at the water, but angry at the systems. Because the water was still there, after all was said and done, still cleansing. Sarah powerfully reminds us that it is not the water that hurts us. It's human systems and greed and racism that cause water scarcity or destruction caused by climate change. This reminds me the importance of remembering the surge value, that there is enough for everyone, 
There are enough resources for everyone, enough water, enough safety, enough life, like this river of life flowing in the Revelation text shows us. White supremacy thrives on manufactured scarcity. It is a system and story that was built because white elite men did not want to share. Whether it's water or food or sunlight and all the other things that we need to grow and to grow the next generation, fighting white supremacy is about fighting the narratives that don't let the water gift herself to everyone. Fighting the narratives that don't make room for God's grace through the water of life that we need to thrive. Thank goodness God and the earth always finds a way to flow through the cracks. My action for you today is to start getting to know what watershed you are in. Which way does the water flow? Who has access to water? Who controls or owns it? Are there any issues around health or pollution in your community associated with water or in nearby communities? Then learn about an issue with water in a place that is far from where you call home. Maybe you can read one of the articles that I post in the transcript or you can find one on your own. When you're learning, think about how that particular place and what they're facing there around water, how that impacts you or vice versa. Just like in the water cycle itself where the water that comes out of my faucet is made of the same molecules that once may have been in the groundwater or in Peru or in India or in Honduras or China. In our global economy and the context of globalized empire, we are inherently interlinked with people across the world engaged in water struggles. One suggestion is to check out the story of Berta Cáceres and the campaign for the river that she lived and died for. You can learn more at www.bertacáceres.org. And there's a powerful video there about what happened and a request from organizers who knew Berta to tell your congressperson to sign the Berta Cárceres Human Rights Act. The act would suspend U.S. military and security assistance with Honduras until human rights violation by Honduran security forces cease and their perpetrators are brought to justice. Also, if you are part of any effort around protecting the environment or waters in your community, be sure to integrate an analysis about environmental racism. When efforts to protect the environment do not take into account how communities of color are disproportionately impacted by environmental de degradation and by climate change, it does a disservice to all of us, and it fails to truly name the beast, the full dimensions of the imperial dragon that we are facing. Thanks so much for joining me. This summer, may you find yourselves like Lydia and the women by the river in prayer near the source of life and grace, that is water. May you, like the author of Revelation, be struck with visions of what it would look like for water again to be considered sacred, for water to be at the center of what we value and hold dear, holding together our visions for the world to come. 
Come, thou font of every blessing, font of life, of liberation, of resistance, of risky struggle, of grace. May you find streams of mercy never ceasing, guiding your way to a world where there is enough for all. Amen. Amen.